did an exposed Chinese database really pose a security threat? And why does vulnerability disclosure continue to be such a challenge? These stories and more in this week's ISMG's Security Report. Hi, I'm Anna Delaney. Earlier this week, a leaked database compiled by a Chinese company became the focus of multiple media reports. Is it all just a storm in a teacup, or is there more than meets the eye? Well, ISMG's Jeremy Kirk, Managing Editor of Security and Technology, did some deep investigation into the story and shared some lessons for us all. Here he is. Does a leaked database from China pose a threat? On Monday, multiple news outlets released a coordinated scoop about the leaked database, which comes from a small company called Shenhua Data. It contains hundreds of gigabytes of data, including profiles on 2.4 million people, news articles, and snippets from press releases. Breathless reporting about the database has stoked fears of how Beijing may be collecting data on politicians, military officers, and other prominent people to potentially target them via future intelligence operations. But while it's easy to spin up a furor over anything regarding China and cybersecurity, this data exposure deserves a more precise examination. The database is called the Overseas Key Information Database, and when I read about it, I thought it sounded familiar. In fact, I had seen parts of it back in January. At the time, a computer security researcher pointed me to a large Elasticsearch cluster that had been left online unprotected. I sifted through small parts of the dataset, but it appeared the information was publicly available. Nonetheless, it looked like something that shouldn't have been left unprotected online. I dropped the company a few emails, which is customary for breach discoveries, but never received a response. The dataset was certainly large, but I didn't find any signs the material came from, for example, unauthorized intrusions into systems. I shelved it with other mysterious breach material I had. Fast forward to this week, an American academic in Vietnam, Christopher Balding, claimed that a source in China put themselves at great risk by pointing him to the data. Balding calls the data the Holy Grail. That it is not. Shenhua data has never been trying to hide. Screenshots in the Wayback Machine starting from eight years ago show how it evolved over the years from a social media monitoring and news aggregator into something more of a corporate intelligence platform that it was trying to sell. It feels like a company that has done what countless other Western companies have done in the age in which data is the new oil, collect it and sell it. It's hardly different from US companies such as Spokio or People, and neither was it very good at securing its own data. But what raised hairs about Shenhua data is that it claims to have worked with the People's Liberation Army and the Communist Party. That has led to speculation Shenhua data's information is fueling larger intelligence efforts by the Chinese government. The company also used terms such as hybrid warfare on its website, which is designed to influence public opinion. To be sure, there are reasons to be worried about China's cyber activity. U.S. prosecutors have pinned on China some of the largest and most worrisome hacks in memory, including the U.S. Office of Personnel Management, Equifax, and health insurance giant Anthem. I would caution that I've only seen a very small slice of the data, and there very well could be material in there that is highly sensitive. But if that's true, the data should be revealed, at least in a redacted form. Most importantly, we need to find out if there's material in here that's actually non-public. When I saw headlines that described this database as a social media warfare database, I cringed. Anyone who posts material to social media sites or the internet in general should expect that data will be scraped by marketing agencies and others. By this point in the internet's history, everyone should have gotten fair warning that this is the current state of affairs. 
The lesson here is anything that you publicly post is likely to be stored by some entity for perpetuity, whether it be an intelligence agency or a scrappy startup getting in the big data trade. Be careful what you expose as it may surface again in the years to come. For Information Security Media Group, I'm Jeremy Kirk. You're listening to the ISMG Security Report on ISMG Radio. ISMG, your number one source for information security news. Now, the job of a bug bounty hunter should be straightforward. Find a bug and get rewarded. Surely every organization would want to be notified of their security vulnerabilities, at least before the press find out. And yet, why is the skill still so often laced with stigma? Well, here is ISMG's executive editor of Data Breach Today in Europe, Matthew Schwartz, who sets about to demystify the air around bug bounty disclosures. Over to Matt. Why does vulnerability disclosure continue to be such a challenge? Vulnerability disclosure refers to the practice of informing a software or hardware vendor that there is a bug in their product. Typically, you are a security researcher and you've found something bad. Maybe it could be exploited or maybe it's already exposing sensitive or regulated data. Some organizations respond to bug reports with a thank you. Some offer bug bounties to reward researchers for finding and directly reporting really bad flaws and giving the organization time to get them fixed before the flaws get publicly exposed. Other firms, however, take a different tack and threaten to sue researchers. And others simply can't be reached. Last month, Dutch researcher Jel Ursum and the privacy advocate known as Dissent reported that for months they had been trying, mostly unsuccessfully, to warn nine U.S. organizations that they were collectively exposing protected health information for at least 150,000 patients via their poorly secured GitHub repositories. At least one of the organizations they attempted to notify at first thought they were scammers. They are not. So why is bug reporting still so fraught? Daniel Cuthbert, a longtime security researcher, says One potential solution is a proposed standard called Security TXT, which would spell out to bug hunters how they can contact an organization via its website. This is the most frustrating part. There isn't a standard way of doing this. You either look on the website for a security-related paragraph that says, if you found something, mail security at org, or you go after them by social media, or you call them up, or there's, there's different ways. One of the ones that I like the most is security.txt. I think it's such an amazing idea, right? It's a proposed standard to add a really simple text file at the root of your website called security.txt, right? And effectively, you add the details in there as to how you want to be contacted. For example, security at bobsacmecats.com, right? Here's our PGP key. Here's our actual policy, right? Here's what we're interested in hearing. And here's how we pay you. Here's how we don't pay you. Here's the kind of bugs we're not interested in. So if this gets adopted, I think it would be so much easier. But on a more basic level, the challenge of reporting flaws reflects many organizations continuing to not understand information security. In other words, maintaining an effective Vulnerability disclosure program requires many preceding steps, including setting cross-department policies for how bugs get handled. 
it's a fairly hard, ugly, vast domain now. How do you know what to do when you get a bug report? You know, not everybody is well-versed in bug hunting, so they know what to do. It goes back to that immaturity of our industry. We've got business continuity. We have compliance policies. We have the whole GRC function. We have policies for everything. But because this is relatively new, as in last 10, 15 years, it's almost like, okay, what do we do with this again? And I think we're now starting to see where actually we do need policy. And God, I can't believe I'm asking for policy stuff. But we need something that an organization can adopt. And maybe it's something that, I don't know, OWASP should do or somebody else that says, hey, here's the sample policy. This is what you do. These are the teams involved. Here's how you raise tickets, all that kind of stuff. Because it's just as well as saying, right, we've got the bug report, but what do I do with it? Do I file that in service now? Is it a problem for IT? Is it the risk officer? Do I have to get legal involved? All that kind of stuff. I think a lot of companies are struggling with this at the moment. So an organization's ability to receive and process bug reports and get back to researchers who've reported them can be read as a measure of the organization's own cybersecurity maturity. HackerOne, which runs bug bunny programs for organizations, says its list of the five biggest, fastest, and most lucrative bug bunny programs that it runs starts with Verizon Media in number one place, followed by Uber, PayPal, Intel, and Twitter. Microsoft, Facebook, Apple, and others also run well-regarded programs. Clearly, some organizations are able to handle bug reports. In the future, hopefully more will learn how to follow. For Information Security Media Group, I'm Matthew Schwartz. And finally, to TikTok or not to TikTok, the outcome on the acquisition of the Chinese social media app remains to be seen. But what is apparent is over the past few years, particularly in China and Southeast Asia, we've seen a number of social media apps become payment or banking apps. So what are the wider implications of these blurred lines and what it means for our security? Well, ISMG's Director of Banking and Payments, Nick Holland, spoke with Deniette De Piero, Vice President and Senior Counsel with the American Bankers Association, to find out her take on the trend. I would note a couple of things. When, when the EO came out against TikTok and WeChat, one of the very first questions I started getting from banking institutions, especially those who are highly active on social media channels, which is, are we allowed to gauge, engage on these channels? In the 2013 risk management guidance around social media, one of the uh, components in there is reputation risk. Mm-hmm. And it did say there may be instances where a bank cannot follow its customers onto certain social channels because of the reputation risk presented by that social media mm-hmm. channel. We've had this conversation around Facebook, even with like the um, Cambridge Analytica yeah. and some of the co- concerns around their security um, you know, content management. But we've never, but when we get something like an executive order from the White House saying that this is a social media channel that is kind of prohibited, does that rise to a level of the, cra- the cross threshold saying that banks should not engage with this, with this app um, in this instance because of the reputation risk? We've not heard that's true, but it's, it's creating this question around, you know, what is the threshold at which point banks cannot follow their customers where their customers right. want to go? With something like WeChat and TikTok, you know, we had a conversation at ABA about we, WeChat several years ago. We, had a, we have about 40 Asian American banks in the States that primarily concentrate on a um, Asian community that's here, here in the States, either an immigrant community or a small business community. And they were asking us about WeChat in very much the same way. Our customers want to use this app. We've never heard of it. We've never seen it. Is it safe? We know it's built by a Chinese company. 
So we were always starting to engage with this at, at a consumer level. Now that we're starting to actually see the way WeChat has grown. And to your point, you're being in certain communities where obviously it's being used. How do you engage, how do you wrestle with the, the idea that our customers are using an app? We may not fully control or, secure, or necessarily know how it's secure. There's obvious questions about some of the security parameters, especially with TikTok and WeChat because mm -hmm. of the EO. Right. And then you, do you continue to use it? Is there a way, especially for some of our large multinational, even if you respect the American EO against TikTok and WeChat, is there a way to segregate the non-US data from mm. the global data and still use those channels within the parameters that are kind of set by the EO? And no one's quite sure. Yeah. We've not seen this before. So I mean, that's interesting. I mean, would that be potentially then a, a spun off separate app? But then how, how would you trust that either? Again, if it's sort of Chinese state government uh, has access to the underlying data there, you know, again, if yeah, you Yeah, no, and, I, and this is a question we've had before. We've, there was, um, even the cybersecurity rules that came out of China, you were, you're expected to encrypt your data in a certain way with a key that would be given to you. And the expectation was the Chinese government would hold the key. Right. So it's secure to a point and you know again how are you how are you willing to engage in those markets what tools you use can you and how do you do that in a compliant way is is very difficult that's it from ismg security report theme music is by ithaca audio i'm anna delaney until next time <laughs>